With so many options to buy or read books online, brick-and-mortar bookstores are becoming harder and harder to find. But one bookstore in New York City has been around since 1925 and is known for its extensive collection of rare and used books. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Argosy Bookstore is the oldest independent bookstore in all of New York City. It's located in a six-story townhouse that's filled with antiquarian and used books, maps, prints, and autographs. The main floor and basement alone hold over 60,000 out-of-print books on a range of subjects. The bookstore is now in its third generation of family ownership. I recently talked with Naomi Hampel. She's one of three sisters who owns and runs Argosy. You are one of the daughters of the original owner, right? I am. I am one of three sisters who are now running Argosy Bookstore. So your dad started Argosy, right? Yes. He started this in 1925, and it was a very unusual beginning for somebody, which could not be done today, but he did, and so it's, it's still here. What inspired your father to open a bookstore in New York City? He had, my father had a very unusual past and childhood, and it was just, uh, it, it just was a series of events that, that worked in in this way. He was the youngest of, of uh, seven children in a very poor family on the Lower East Side. His parents owned a bakery and he was left to grow himself up because his other siblings were far older and they were already out in the world. And when he was not quite born yet, he was, uh, my, my grandmother was pregnant, her husband, the father, went out after hours when the bakery was closed and as he always did, he would have a basket and give away bread that hadn't sold that day. And one day he went out and it was the winter time and uh, he had, he was doing that and some boys in the neighborhood saw him and he was an older man with a beard and he was, um, you know, it it was an anti-Semitic act and they attacked him and they threw an ice ball at him, it was the middle of winter, and it hit him in the head. And about a week later, he gradually, and about a week later, became totally blind. And there was nothing that could be done about it. It was too late, and they wouldn't have had the money anyway. So when my father was born, he was born with a blind father and a mother who was full-time working the bakery. So it was a very difficult childhood, but he and his father were very close. And when he was, there was no money in the family, really, so when he was um, old enough, about 14 years old or 15, he had to find a job, and he saw an, an advertisement for a helper wanted in a bookstore. And he decided that would be nice, and he went to this bookstore and he found there was a crowd of young boys uh, waiting for the job and the the door opened and the owner came out and he said when he saw this large group of, of kids he said can anybody here type and my father who had 
sneaked into the rooms in the schools when he could. To, he taught, had taught himself to type. He raised his hand. He got the job. And, and it brought him into a new world, and he fell in love with books passionately. And he, if he had five cents extra after the paychecks came in, or ten cents, he would buy a book or two books, and he would bring it home and talk to his father about it. And he would say, here, hold this book. It's green and is written by an English person whose name is Dickens. And the name is Christmas Carol or whatever. And then they'd, he'd put the book under the bed, under the bed, bed got crowded. He would put it in cupboards and the bathrooms up. And um, this went on for a very long time. So he amassed this great collection of books. Well, he amassed, it was very slow, and he was learning what makes a book good or better or best. But he just bought what he liked. And when he was 20, still living at home, uh, he felt that he he really wanted to go into the book business. It was his the only thing that made him totally happy and distracted and whatever. And he borrowed $500 from an uncle. And with that $500 in 1925, one could open a store. He paid a month's rent and he had some paint, paint on and some shelves. And he was in business. So he, when he brought all the books from home, which were a lot, it didn't fill the shelves by any means, so he put the books sideways so it filled up space and it didn't look like he had empty spaces. But he was launched, and he was a very kind man who was very good in business and was very nice to everybody, including other dealers. And he entered this just before the Depression, but he he made it work, and he had a sister who helped him out a lot and hired a part-time cataloger but as he could, but he was launched. Now, that first bookstore was not here, though, no. on East 59th Street. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was, that was down in the old book district. It was on Lower 4th Avenue. I think he was on, he was on Lafayette Street on street level, and there were a lot of other second-hand bookstores in the neighborhood and on that very street. So it was, a, it was a, a spot where everybody would come when they came to New York. That was the neighborhood that they went book shopping in. What inspired him then to move uptown? That was in 1953 that he moved here, right? Yeah, and it was, uh, I never really could, we never figured out, but he just had a sense that he wanted to be somewhat apart and grow. Uh, and there was another, there were two other bookstores on this street, so it was not a foreign place for people to go when they wanted books. There were other possibilities. And uh, he found in a brownstone on this very street a three floors, a basement, a main floor, and uh, another floor above with a stock room even further up. So he moved in there, and just it just worked. It just it just filled up with books, and uh, he loved buying so much that whenever 
and the way he bought, and we still do, is when somebody calls to sell books, they're usually selling an entire library. And his way and our way has pretty much been, don't go and pick the books that you want, buy the whole thing. Because it's good for the person who's selling, and then we don't have to spend our time picking and maybe leave something behind that we might have liked. Or Anyway, it worked. And so he amassed a very large quantity of books. And my mother was the one who suggested, having had their honeymoon in London some years before, she suggested that he find a way to put books outdoors. And he, we built the, an arcade, so the front of our store is indented by about 12 feet, which is now lined with books and, and tables of books that we have on sale and windows with, that have some paintings and prints and autographs. It's like stepping back in time when you walk past this store and you see that. Exactly, and uh, it seemed to work for an antiquarian bookstore, and uh, it still does. People still come in and they are amazed to see the... It's very old-fashioned, it still is. Everything we do is in a sort of an old-fashioned way, and it works. Now, how is it that this bookstore is still around in 2019 in today's digital age? Well, the answer is real estate, and that's the reason there are no bookstores in New York. No, they couldn't possibly afford the rent. However, in 1953, somebody came into the store and said, hey, the building next door is for sale. And my husband said, oh, that's nice, that's interesting. And they chatted about it, and the guy walked out, and the minute he walked out, my father went outside, went into the building, went, found the owner who was working upstairs, and he bought the building. Literally the same day. It was the reason that we're still in, it's the reason that we're still in business. So we moved, we used a lot of, uh, some of the space in this building for uh, numbers of years and rented out a couple top floors. But they finally tore down the the brownstone that we were originally in, and we moved the whole business into here about 1964. When you walk into the shop, it has an amazing, distinct smell, a smell that you will not find in most other stores. (laughs) We hear that a lot. If you're sitting at the front desk, you hear the most uh, frequent thing is, oh, it smells so good. Oh, my grandmother's attic. Oh, I love that smell, and I can't smell. None of us who work here can anymore. We're immune, but uh, yeah, it's very old-fashioned still, and we have old-fashioned systems that would make any modern person in business crazy, but it works for us. It's a different kind of a business, and since it's all family who are making the decisions, we we get along very well. So you and your two sisters are the ones who run this shop today? Yes, and my nephew, my older sister's son, Ben, is, has been here for several decades. And he's definitely going to take over, and he's terrific. He's fabulous. So it's really the four of us. And Was it expected that the three girls would take over the shop from Dad? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, no, as a matter of fact, my mother, who seems to have had great wisdom... Uh, once said to my father, whatever you do, do not ask the girls to work for you. Do not. However, and, and, he, and he didn't. 
But every night when we all sat around for dinner, he would tell stories about some unusual purchase that he made into an unusual house with an unusual situation, or somebody came into the store and it was a very unusual this or special that. And we just kept hearing very, very satisfying stories, and he was so happy with what he did. And we would all visit him when we were very little. I could hardly look over, see over a desk, and he, I would come into the store, and he said, oh, I'm so happy you're here. I have this very wonderful job I need you to do. And what was it? was arranging scrap paper or straightening out a show, whatever I could reach and do. And he did that very well. He did that very well. So it was always a happy experience to come in here for the three of us. He always made each of us feel welcome and needed. When I was going to graduate from college, I said, so I'll work here. And he said, no. And I was never so shocked in my life. And he, I said, why? He said, because you, you have to work for somebody who's mean and who makes you come in on time and who will not let you smoke. And I was so shocked. <laughs> I said, I'll be good. I'll be good. So he said, well, let me think about it. It was very clever. It was the cleverest thing he ever did because he always put his foot in something, you know. But I think my mother was the puppeteer on this. And I think he was pretty much that way to the other girls, too, although each one of them had a job before, and um, they didn't like the job, and so they, they ended up here. But I've never been late. <laughs> I'm here almost 60 years. I've never been late. I stopped smoking during the day, and it was great. It's the best. It's the best life. I cannot tell you what joy it is to be here. It's just wonderful. As a little girl, would you go with Dad to acquire yes. books? Oh, that was so wonderful. And when he, even when I was ten years old and eleven, when he he would take a a car trip on the weekend because he didn't like to leave the store. If he could arrange a, a we call it a, a book buy he would arrange it on a weekend and if he did that he would always take one of us and I remember going very frequently and it was a unique experience because even though I might have been young I would watch how he went along the shelves and in a very low voice he would just say what he's looking at and I didn't know what you know but it 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 registered, and he would say, this one is nothing, this is nothing, and that's a good book, this is a good book, we could put that one in, this one's good. And then I heard him talking to people at the end. He believed that a, a deal that's made between people is not good unless both people are happy. And he, w when he finished with somebody, they would say thank you, and were thrilled, and so was he. It was a very wonderful experience, and uh, we try to be the same today, and it's, it, 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 it works. It does. So where are you primarily acquiring books from Private. today? Entirely privately. We get phone calls frequently during the day of people who want to sell, and we ask them basic questions. First of all, how many books? And if they say we have 20, I'll say, well, you'd have to bring them in. We don't go out and look for less than about 500 books. Uh, or But we talk about it. And then we say, well, what is the nature of the books? And so on. And what is the vintage and what is the condition? And 
what is what is a general look of the library. Sometimes we ask them for a photograph of several shelves. But if it sounds good and the person sounds at least a little well-read on the other end of the line and it's not paperback, whatever, we'll go and take a look. And more often than not, we buy them because we've asked enough questions to find out that it would be a worthwhile trip. And then, then the next step is sending our our guys with a, a car or a truck. I was going to say, how far will you travel uh, for books? Well, if it's fantastic, it's, if it really sounds like a major private library, we'll go. Uh, we go. We go anywhere, but we really don't like to get on a plane. Although it's been done, but uh, but we've driven to New England or way into New Jersey, we, mostly the East Coast. We otherwise we try to do it by mail. But it's really an East Coast thing. So tell us about the collection that you have here. What's here? We have seven floors, and several of them are not. Well, there's uh, one floor is a lot of uh, office, office and packing, and we have stock rooms. But on every floor, there's something special. The top floor is entirely autographed letters and assigned books. And that's my department, uh, although I do other things too. We don't. We all do lots of things, but this is something that was created in in 1982, and it's very big. It may not be the most valuable collection that you could find to look through, but it's the most varied and large. Uh, so that's the autograph. The floor below, the fifth floor, has a very large American history section. Tremendous. Every state in the Union is represented, and every and aspects of American history, the Civil War, World War One and Two, so on. And that's large and very carefully organized and beautifully presented for browsing. And on the same floor, there is a first editions, a literary first editions, American and English first, uh, first editions, which has been run by my sister, my older sister, Judith, for many decades, and it's a marvelous place. And uh, again, that can only be accessed when you're with somebody. She'll go up there and find out what you're looking for and let you have you browse, but it's otherwise kept locked. Then we skip down to the fourth floor is office space and stock rooms of rare books that are locked. Third floor is not really for browsing because it's stock rooms again but this, the the second floor is fabulous it is, it's a gallery an antique prints and maps gallery which was started by my mother who was a school teacher until she retired after the third child the third daughter was born and she stayed home as a uh, and until I think uh, my, my little sister, Adina, who is now a big shot here, was about nine or nine years old. And one day my father said, I have a job for you, you know. And he, she said, what? He, he said, well, I need you to take care of a gallery. It was it's just a long story. But anyway, she came in and she took over the second floor, which was trying to be 
a gallery of antique prints and antique maps. And she was the most organized person. She was very smart, very organized. And in, within a year, she had it so well organized that you could ask for any subject any subject, and she would have a folder already made. And if she didn't have one, she'd make one because you asked for it, and therefore somebody else will ask for it. So antique prints and antique maps is what happens in the gallery, and it's a wonderful place. She also learned how to do fine framing, which she did. But the gallery continues without her now, and, and, and it's a very, very wonderful place. And uh, let's see, where else? The, well, the, main the first floor, right? The, the main, main floor. The main floor is it. That's like... A little of absolutely everything. The main floor is very interesting because uh, there are books outside for sometimes $1, $3, and then a table, which we have something special on it as a low price. So there's always a, the arcade, which my mother decided we should have, really is a terrific idea. So there's always a new subjects going on out there, and we take care of that outside, so it always looks nice. and so. But inside there's... A little of everything. We have many, many subjects in small amounts around the walls so that you can see many, many kinds of books, including rare books and cases and behind glass. We have five rare book cases. What would you say are among the rarest books that you have here? <laughs> Things that blow your mind. Wow. Well, it's so, it's so hard to say. I get asked that, and the variety is enormous. We have... Uh, the first editions of some of the most important books, you know, Moby Dick and and, and uh, you know, the Dickenses and very rare books and old atlases and um, it, it's it's impossible to mention one book. It's just, I guess, if I had a lot of time, I could come up with a few. But um, they're always locked up. The, the most expensive books are behind are, are locked. But we have books from maybe. $200 to a few thousand dollars that we have in our display cases that are beautiful to look at from, I mean, we open the cases for people who need to see them. Who are your customers these days? Who <laughs> is buying books? You know, according to us, the whole world loves books because if they do, they'll find us. So our customers come from all over the world because we're getting a reputation. We're in a lot of guidebooks now. And there are people who just coming in to look for one subject specifically or something unique for their own home or a gift. We do very well with gifts here. It's a perfect gift place. Uh, we love helping people who want to get something a little special and, and we always find it. When somebody comes from Australia and they have a wonderful experience, when they go home they'll they'll mention that in the, the next time somebody else comes. But it, it, it's from all over the world that we have customers. I noticed some wonderful paintings along the walls in the main gallery. Is mm -hmm. that a... That used to be. That used to be something we dealt with more. And it was only American 19th century art paintings. And um, so if something comes along will buy it, but we're not reaching for it. They're just very decorative, and they're for sale. And it's just a very such a specific kind of art that there are people who look for them, but not that many. So, but we sell them from time to time. What about the name? How did your dad come up with the name oh. of this shop? <laughs> well, he knew he wanted it to start with a letter A, 
wanted to be the first one when people looked <laughs> in the yellow pages or wherever they looked. And, uh, you know, so looked at all the possibilities. And the word Argosy means, and Argosy was a ship that was filled with treasure way back in the Greek times. And, and the Argonauts were the ones who did a lot of finding things on ships, and, and the Argonauts were known for that. So uh, it was, they were treasure ships. So he thought that was good, and I think it worked. So he got two things. He got the letter A, and he got a good meaning for it. It wasn't, uh, yeah, and his name or anything like that. So it worked. So far, so good. <laughs> we haven't mentioned your father's name. Your father was Lewis, Lewis Cohen, Cohen, right? Yeah. yeah. He thought Cohen's bookstore wasn't broad enough. So he made it bigger than that. There's a story I wonder if you can share where your father changed Cohen to Cullen. Oh, <laughs> how did you know about that? This goes back to the Depression, when he would look for books everywhere, and people were having trouble, and they were selling books that they ordinarily wouldn't sell. So he got a call from a woman who lived in a very rarefied, expensive community, upstate New York. And she had a uh, a library to sell. So he made an appointment to go up there. And when he got there, she opened the door and she said, you are Mr. Cohen? And he knew what she was saying. Are you you are Jewish? I didn't know Cullen, C-U-L-L-E-N, Cullen. Oh, okay, that was fine. So he came in and he bought her books, but it was it was very obvious, and he handled it. I thought very well, and <laughs> thought fast. But uh, he didn't hear that very often. He was uh, he was very very widely respected. In fact, of all the booksellers, I've been told from other dealers. He was the only one that that didn't have stories behind his back and things like that. They all liked him, and he was so honorable. So it worked. How does it make you feel to be the oldest independent bookstore in all of New York City? Well, we're thrilled and very, very aware of how special it is, and we're very careful. We, we All our decisions in buying and how we deal with people and where we price things and do everything we do. We're very aware that it should be very, very uh, well done and something we're very proud of. And it's come back to us. It's very it's very satisfying because I haven't heard, of, I mean, maybe there is one, but you haven't heard a bad word about us. There doesn't seem to be any negativity. And the people who find us are amazed that that in New York, after going through all these streets of new things, that they walk into this place and are so thrilled that it smells like their grandmother's attic and that they can touch these things. And, and it, it works. It works. How frequently are you having developers knock on your door and oh, say, you know what, we want to buy? <laughs> this has been going on since the 1950s. And... Uh, <laughs> and people come in and, and try to sell it, and my father said it's not for sale. So they'd come back and they'd raise the price, and he'd say it's not for sale. And behind their back, behind his back, they would make this crazy sign with their because there's no 
nothing that's not for sale. But it's not for sale. It never was. And when they were going to build next door, it was very important to add this property to it. It would have made a difference of another 30 stories on a, on a building. And it wasn't for sale. I mean, it was simple. That that was it. But it took a long time before the real estate people believed it. We still get calls because we're the only private little property on the block, and it's going to stay that way. <laughs> you know. And then people say, you could have had millions and millions. I said, well, I would, yes, probably, but I don't have time. I, all I would do is stay home and count my money, and I'm having more fun doing what I'm doing, you know. And it's true. I can't imagine doing anything I like more. It's been fabulous. And it's amazing that the three sisters really get along. There have been spats, but nothing that wasn't easily talked about. And we've always had the, uh, the rule that if there's any big decision, all three, not two against one, but three, have to agree for, for the larger decisions. And it... it it worked very well, and uh, I'm very happy and very proud that it's come this far and we, we've done it. Naomi, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Really good to talk with you. Thank you. The Argosy Bookstore is located at 116 East 59th Street in Manhattan. You can find out more at argosybooks.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. The music for this episode of Cityscape is courtesy of Poddington Bear. Make sure you subscribe to WFUV Cityscape on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening.